Alright, Black Art and American Family, this is Najee Dorsey here for another installment of Bio Talks. Here on the phone, I've got art lawyer, Symmetria Goodson, who's going to discuss the top three legal issues for artists, collectors, and galleries, and give us some advice on best practices for avoiding disputes. But before we get into the uh, conversation, uh, I want to welcome Symmetria. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Najee? I'm doing well. Uh, I want to first thank you for being a part of our upcoming show in Philadelphia. Uh, I know you're going to bring some tremendous insight to the topic centered around the Barnes Collection. Yes, I'm excited about it. Uh, I uh, went to law school in Philly, and I lived in Philly for a little bit before going back to graduate school. So it's sort of a homecoming for me. But uh, but yeah, I was in and around Philadelphia when that collection moved to the Parkway. So. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with the group there about some of the legal issues and a path forward and kind of ways to think about collection management post Barnes collection. So, uh, so it's, it's exciting. Yeah, very nice. The uh, well, you know, before we get into this whole issue centered around art and law, and I'm sure it's going to be a really great conversation. Tell us a little bit about your background. You know, where you grew up and and how you came to be a, uh, an attorney. Yeah, well, I am born and raised, Texas born and raised in Houston, so I grew up there going to museums and going to different performing arts uh, venues and and uh, also participating in performing arts in church. We didn't call it performing arts in church, but uh, but uh, but definitely a part of plays and the choir and all of that in, in church. Uh, but besides that, I always had a love for the arts, my mom and dad. Um, our museum people, so they uh, took my brother and I to museums. So I grew up going to specifically the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, which is uh, one of my favorite museums, as well as the Children's Museum there. So uh, I didn't know at the time that what I thought was recreation would be something that I could incorporate into my life's work. And so, you know, go through grade school, went off to the University of Texas, and there I was able to study uh, both art history as well as uh, business at University of Texas at Austin. And that was wonderful um, in that I, both of those environments were nurturing, and there, uh, that's where I developed sort of my left brain, right brain way of thinking, where I would run to accounting class in the business school, but paint underneath my fingernails, and then I would sometimes run over to a, you know, a 2D or a sculpture class over at, at the College of Fine Arts, like, with a suit on from my, from, from dealing with interviews and such on in, the in business school. So, I literally, like, ran back and forth in, in campus uh, at UT, which is a big campus, mm-hmm. kind of switching back and forth between the left brain, right brain, the business world art, business art, back and forth, back and forth. My thought, Najee, upon graduation was that I was going to work on the commercial side of the art world. I was thinking Sotheby's, Christie's, international art market in terms of sales. But uh, I got the proverbial offer you cannot refuse for a company that hired me to do some marketing and sales. And so uh, it was a wonderful offer. So I took that uh, opportunity. And that's what actually got me out there to the East Coast by way of California. But the whole time, Najee, I was involved with arts kind of on the periphery, right? So I still went to museums, still went to galleries. I still, you know, tried to support artists who going to shows and, and doing things like that. Again, art being a part of my life, but on the periphery. Uh, but over time, uh, and working with a group specifically actually in Philadelphia, this uh, group was a performance-based group, and they're kind of on the edge, if you will, 
of their performance uh, art practice. And so uh, I was working with them, just helping them doing volunteer work with business type issues, you know, reading balance sheets, making sure their books were together, helping mm-hmm. them come up with and organize their, basically their paperwork and their organization is helping them get a plan together and helping them market themselves. But what I found out through working with them is that there were just a lot of legal issues that they were running into. And Philadelphia is a wonderful artist market. There's a lot going on, a lot of collectives. And so I actually went to law school to practice art law. But when I went, that wasn't necessarily a thing. Now, there were some big firms maybe in New York or maybe in London Mm -hmm. that had uh, folks that represented museums or they might have represented big galleries like Gagosian in New York, but in terms of there being something called art law, it was just kind of like a growing a growing uh, segment of the legal field. And so when I went to law school, my professors, I went to Temple University, it's a wonderful law school, but they kind of scratched their head and they said, well, what you mean is entertainment law, right? Yeah, yeah, we understand entertainment law. You know, that's copyright, that's trademark, and you learn all of these things uh, if you want to do that. But I was... I was sure that entertainment law was, was not exactly the direction I wanted to go in. And so I kind of stuck, stuck with it and then graduated from there, did some litigation for a while. And um, I would say it's two years ago now, I transitioned into uh, pursuing art law as a specific niche practice area. And April of this year, I started my own firm based here in the DFW area. Okay. Uh, and one of my practice areas is art law. Um, I do do entertainment law to the extent that I hope uh, clients in the entertainment spaces um, protect their copyright intellectual property. Uh, and then also, though, I work with designers and creatives in general, right? So what I've found is that often you may have an artist who's a painter who's also a graphic designer, who's also being hired by corporations to do murals. And so what's fascinating to me is to see how since I've, gone to law school and since I've come out and practiced and picked up all of these different skills, both litigation and transactional skills, that artists themselves have kind of shifted, if you will, or there's more of them uh, who are thinking about how to monetize the fruits of their creative efforts. And so it's kind of like a very, uh, I would say, a, a symbiotic relationship where I offer services to creatives broadly. Uh, and that's art law, that's fashion law, that's a little bit of entertainment, work with uh, organizations, nonprofits. Um, I'll be working with the art festival in, in Austin, helping them get their art festival off the ground for next year. So it's just broadly speaking creatives. So what, what I absolutely love, though, is that this uh, area of, of practice that I went to law school to practice wasn't a thing at the time. But, yeah, you know, yeah. overall, that's almost been a decade now, almost been a decade uh, you know, eight years later, right, it's uh, a, a skill set that I'm finding that the market, at least a lot of people, it resonates. And so when I tell people, look, I have an art history degree, I, you know, I I am in this space because I love art, specifically visual art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in this space because I love copyright, I love trademark, and I love the idea of those intellectual properties being kind of the bread and butter foundation for what an artist uh, has. And I absolutely love working with um, folks to help them monetize what they uh, what they do and the fruits of their creative efforts. So that's kind of like the, I just breeze through like a long timeline. And <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so well, let's, let's get it. 
Yeah, well, let's get into the meat of it a little bit, if we could. I'm curious to know, like, I mean, you, you, you've outlined that, that, you know, you want to get into, like, the top three legal issues concerning artists, collectors, and galleries. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So I've uh, I've worked with all, all three groups, um, either directly or, or indirectly, between artists, collectors, and galleries. And so, just to be clear, the artist is the creator of the work, right? The person that's putting out the creative product. Collectors are the folks that are buying those works to keep within their collectors, which are kind of different than art dealers. Dealers and galleries are kind of like a third subset of folks who are in the art market to help facilitate work coming from artists and getting into collectors' hands. And so what I found uh, and what my clients come to me to, to talk about often is really just dealing with and managing relationships. And so each one of these groups has over, a little bit of overlap, and it's interesting because to to think about the top three legal issues, you kind of have to think about think about it from an artist's perspective, and then flip on the other side and think about it from a gallery's perspective, right? And then the collectors in the middle. So you kind of have to put on on different hats. But in terms of artists, so for the the artists out there, the top three issues that I work with and that I see uh, related to artists is that number one is just not understanding your rights. Um, and by rights, I mean your copyright specifically. And there are a lot of artists out there who are creating, who are putting their product out there, but they don't understand that they have a copyright from the moment that they uh, paint something, from the moment they create something, right? You have a copyright mm-hmm. in that work as soon as you fix it in a tangible medium of expression. And that's a thing, right? That's a right. It's like having a flag in the ground saying this is your property right Right. same thing as real property physical property that's your work now in order to get the full protection of what's available under u.s copyright law you certainly have to register that work but i don't i run across a lot of artists who just don't really actually have that basic understanding that their work is valuable more than just the fruit of their creative effort but that there's actually a copyright that they have in it from the moment that, that they create it now, once you register it and bring yourself under the purview of copyright law, there are things that you have, multiple rights that you have in your work. Um, we call them, in IP law, we call them the 106 rights. You have the right to control the reproduction. You have the right to control whether or not a derivative or alternative work is made based on your work. You have the right to control the distribution of copies by sale. You have the right to even control the display, the public display of your work. And so it, within that copyright, you have multiple little rights within them under your copyright. And each one of those rights in and of itself is also valuable. Uh, I tend to find musicians that understand this a little bit better because they understand the difference between sound recordings and who writes the music and who sings the music and who owns the lyrics and there's producer credits and all of that. But with my visual artists, I do spend quite a bit of time just educating really folks on the fact that those rights exist. And the source of those rights is the U.S. Constitution, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, that's different than other IP, like maybe trademark or patent. Those are statutory, right? Legislators, they're, they're laws that are on the book. But copyright is derived directly from the, from the know, Constitution. And I think that's very important. You know, I've got one question because I'm sure you can just go with the flow and just, just keep, keep um, you know, um, giving us the facts around the, the, the law. But my question, I guess, would be, 
you know, how often have you found examples, particularly as it relates to visual artists, of their uh, rights being infringed upon? And, you know, what was some of the recourse? I mean, right now we're in the digital age and, you know, a lot of people are sharing a lot of things on social media. So, I mean, can you give any real life examples of an infringement and something that was done as a result of? Sure, sure. And you hit the nail on the head, Najee, with the advent of like the digital world that we're in globally. Once you say digital, you're really saying globally, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. the global digital world that we're in, um, it's just easier. It's just easier to snap a photo of somebody's uh, work and to then use it for your own purposes. So there are some big like blockbuster cases that have to do with infringement. Um, there's the Prince cases. There's there's multiple cases where one artist actually, and there's a string of artists known as appropriation artists, where they literally like take a photograph, for instance, that of of one artist, like a photographer is an artist, so they take a photograph from one artist, and then they take that work, they make some arguably minimal uh, changes to it, or they or they make changes to the work, and then they then take that work and say, okay, I've taken this photograph, I've added some things, I've made some modifications, and so it's now my work, and then I'm going to sell it. So that's one example. And that really falls within a whole line of cases called fair use cases, where there is this sort of limitation on your copyright that says, well, to a certain extent, we want to, the policy is from the government is that we want to make sure that we spur creativity, right? So we don't want to just completely keep people from being inspired by other folks' work. So the fair use arguments and cases we will not get into today because that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. And frankly, the courts within the Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, which is Second Circuit's New York-based courts, Ninth Circuit's California, and the courts in between, I mean, the circuits kind of go back and forth in terms of defining what that means. So, uh, but that's often where it shows up, Najee, with infringement between artists, right? Artists infringing on or the claims of that artists are infringing on each other's work. Beyond that, you have, um, let's say you have a photograph of your work, you're an artist, you have a photograph of your own work on your own website, and that's a website that you use to market your work. Well, you may find that somebody might take a photograph or take that image off your website, and then next thing you know, you see that on like a t-shirt, so, or you see that on some printed material, or you see that being used as some sort of advertising. Those are the types of things that, that happen where your work is being infringed upon, and those are real-life examples, things that happen, I won't say on a daily basis, but almost on a, on a daily basis. So. So those are definitely some things that you want to um, be be mindful of, particularly if you have multiple editions of a work. And so infringement happens quite often, uh, and it's difficult to kind of unwind that if you haven't registered copyright, or if you don't even know that you have a copyright um, in that work prior to putting it on your website. So so that's important as let me, well. Let me ask so you this. There's kind of a thin, a thin line between... Right. inspiration right mm-hmm. and transformative use well let's say i mean i mean i mean this is a rabbit hole i'm sure we can just continue to go down but i'm just kind of curious in the sense of let's say it's something that's not you know non-commercial i mean uh, any any you know blockbuster cases of infringement where someone you know posted a picture on their website to market or even posted something in social media on the various platforms to promote their work and then somebody else used their work in an ad or they just use it and shared it on their wall with no intent of selling 
I mean, if you share it on your personal wall or even, you know, just news or something that's news related, uh, where you may not necessarily have the, you know, contacted the artist or the rights to share the work. I mean, what, how does that law um, affect either the, the person that's posting, reposting something or the artists themselves in that, in those type of scenarios? So in that type of scenario, you kind of start at the top where someone has a copyright in that work. So, and it's also one of the things that I often educate my, my artist clients on is that under copyright law, your ownership in a specific work, like your ownership of the physical painting, for instance, does not mean that your copyright and your ability to pre prevent other people from reproducing photographic images of it those two things do not go together. So, so what I mean by that is, so uh, right now as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at a work that I um, uh, obtained from the Dallas Art Fair a couple years ago. Well, I own this physical painting, mm -hmm. but every time I want to do a presentation or every time I want to display an image of this painting, even though it's mine, like it's mine, I own it, right? I contact the artist, contact the, the gallery, and make sure that I have permission to display a photograph of that work. Because just because I own the physical copy of the work, I own the physical work, it doesn't mean that I have the entire set of 106 copyrights that the artist has in their work. And there's other laws and other things on the US copyright that kind of bleed into that. So I do that because I know that that's kind of the right thing to do. And I do that because I just know that that's how uh, copyright works. Now, when you mention news, um, you post something for news or it's non-commercial or you're using it to promote or you're just in a museum and you're taking pictures and you're posting, what should you be looking out for if you're the person that's doing that? You just have to know, though, what you're doing is there, there are copyrights in that particular work. So all of the thoughts about well, is it for the news? Is it for marketing? Is it non-commercial? Those are all arguments that people bring up in the fair use discussion where they say, well, I'm using this for news purposes or I'm using this to, uh, you know, promote something or I'm using this, I'm just putting it on my Instagram page because I think it looks great. This happens often with murals, by the way. Mm -hmm. The argument is, oh, well, it's in the public, so... I'm going to take a photo of it and then post it. So am I infringing on the copyright? That just seems a little broad. Those are all arguments that go under what's known as like a fair use type of an argument. And this is the actual legal theory. So when I say fair use, I, I'm not just saying that as, oh, it's fair to use it. I'm saying that as a legal theory. And indeed, it's a defense, actually, to copyright infringement. For the most part, Najee, you don't see, laws, you don't see many lawsuits going back and forth with folks um, suing each other because of that for infringement, but that doesn't mean you, you aren't infringing if you haven't indeed reached out to the artist to get permission to post that. Now, one of the things that people say is, well, if I give them credit, right, if I, if I attribute the work to them, does that make it all better? The answer to that question is, I'm going to give you a standard lawyer answer to a question, which is, it depends on a bunch of things. Uh, but if you start with understanding that artists do have a copyright in their work, specifically photographs, right? If, if, you, if you start with that, then that can help you determine what are you actually doing with, with this work? What's your purpose for posting it? And then, you know, you have to manage the risk of there being some sort of an issue. Certainly, um, 
there are, are artists that are known for really protecting their their work. Um, there are even there have been cases where celebrities have posted photographs uh, or or they have taken photographs in front of artists' work, and there's been some back and forth with that. So so yeah, you there are arguments that if something's for the for a news story, for instance, or if you're just posting it on on Instagram, that doesn't rise to the level of someone literally appropriating a work and selling it in an art gallery and making millions of dollars off of it, which is one of the cases for infringement. Those two are kind of different, but it is something to be mindful of. And I would say this bleeds over into issues with galleries. I I would say one of the top legal issues with galleries is just having um, kind of vague understanding of the gallery's ability to use images and what they're supposed to be doing in terms of their relationship with the artist. And so if you're a gallery and you're representing an artist, you want to make sure you have something in writing where the artist explicitly says that you can, you know, use a photograph, a high-quality, high-resolution photograph of the work for marketing purposes. That sounds like it's a given, but... From an art gallery's perspective, risk management being one of the top things you want to look at, that's something that a gallery may want to incorporate in their workflow to just have something in writing that explicitly states you have the ability to modify even a high-resolution photograph for marketing purposes or to print it on something or to enter into some agreement where where that photograph is, is used in an advertisement, be it something online or a banner ad or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, so that's important as well. So the assumption isn't, oh, well, I'm just taking a photograph. I'm not trying to sell it, so it's not infringement. That is not how the legal arguments work. It's most likely you are infringing, and then the question is, do you have a defense of fair use? But as I tell my clients, you only get to say fair use when somebody has accused you of infringement. So it doesn't work the other way around. It's not like you just have a right, and, and there's a, a philosophical argument about this, and there's lots of legal um, articles about this, uh, law review articles about this, whether or not fair use is a right versus a defense. But as the law stands right now, it's a defense. So you only get to cry fair use when somebody's accused you of infringement in the first place. So mm-hmm. you've got to be mindful to not to infringe from the from the start, <laughs> then you don't have, really have to worry about fair use and making these other arguments on the back end. I see. Hey, Black Art and American Fam, it's Najee Dorsey. I hope you're enjoying this installment of Buy It Talk. Just a little housekeeping. Wanted to let you know about our upcoming show, September 14th through the 16th at the Belmont Mansion. It's the Black Art in America Fine Art Show, Philadelphia. We've got a great program lined up for you. Great gallerists that's going to have works by a number of legacy artists and some fantastic contemporary artists. Be sure to take a look at our uh, highlights of a number of Philadelphia artists and a number of the galleries that's coming from around the country. We're really excited about this show. It's going to be our largest show to date, uh, all in Philadelphia. We're hearing from collectors and artists and art enthusiasts from around the country. So have your face in the place. But what is sure to be a fantastic weekend at the historic Belmont Mansion and Underground Railroad Museum, September 14th through the 16th for the Black Art in America Fine Art Show Philadelphia. Join us. Story upon story upon story of just 
artists coming to me with these really interesting stories about just a relationship with the gallery that's just gone in a, a direction that just isn't good for anybody. And then vice versa, you know, a gallery who's having a problem with the artist. And then I have um, collectors, particularly collectors who are, you know, just entering the collection world. They have a lot of questions as well, particularly with, with collectors. Number one issue is provenance and authentication, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just once you transition from just buying things to put on your wall to actually collecting work, which as soon as you make a certain kind of invest, investment in a piece of visual art, you are a collector. Provenance and authentication becomes really important even with contemporary work, particularly mm-hmm. if there's multiple editions. So that's a whole other topic in and of itself. And then for collectors also is management, documentation, storage, insurance. Um, you want to make sure you have the right information. You want to make sure um, to the extent that there's any scholarship regarding the work that you know that. And you really want to know whether or not that work is in other collections. So this is all information you want to get from the artist. And then collectors need to think about, well, what happens after they pass away? Like, what do they want to happen with the art? That's kind of what we'll get into in the Barnes collection discussion when we're in Philly. Mm -hmm. But that's something to think about, right? Because these are valuable um, works. And collectors, I see them as caretakers of culture, right? And so you have a responsibility to make sure that the work that you're collecting is properly documented because if it's not documented, then it will never be a part of the canon, right? And so particularly with art of the diaspora, particularly with art of of women or any other groups that aren't in the, I would say, standard art historical canon, right? Part of the reason is because there isn't any documentation. And so there's a level of seriousness around collecting work that, um, that collectors could and should think about and there are legal issues within those. But yeah, we can talk all day about artists. <laughs> um, one of my pet peeves, the thing that kind of just red flags go up all over the place is when I have an artist come to me and say, hey, I'm getting ready to do this collaboration. And collaboration is kind of like a catch-all for, on the positive side, is people working together, bringing the best of what they have together to make beautiful things, mm. beautiful art, beautiful whatever it is. Right. That's a positive. On the negative side, it's, a bunch of people with vague de- definition of who's doing what. You have imbalance and power structures. You have people investing and other people aren't investing. And at the end of it, it seems like there's always one person that tries to benefit from it to the expense of everybody else. So, so I would say, I mean, number two top legal issue for an artist. You're just focusing on artists is collaborations, right? You just don't want to have vague relationships. And collaborations are popular. So, what's an example of a collaboration? Well. That could be as simple as, a, as an artist. There's a local artist here um, in Dallas who is mostly a mural artist, also does um, body art, also um, does commission work. Well, this particular artist has, is now working with a, um, a fashion company that's based in Japan, and this artist is doing, you know, customized uh, commission-based sneaker designs. So this artist is now a fashion designer, but they're a muralist at heart, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a collaboration in that this artist is using their talent as a painter to apply it to fabric for this particular you know, fashion element, right? A shoot. That's what they're doing. So they're collaborating together for that to work. You see all sorts of collaborations within the sports world of people doing things like that. 
I guarantee you, though, that there's some kind of contract between them which sets out specifically what people are doing. So those are the best ways to collaborate. If you're going to work with people, um, particularly if you're working with multiple artists, you do want to have an understanding of who's doing what, who owns the copyright. Because if a bunch of artists get together and make something, Mm -hmm. they all have a, a copyright, a joint copyright, and that works, right? So that is something that you have to be mindful of. And so what I've seen happen is that one person will come in, collaborate, quote, quote, I'm doing air quotes as I say that, collaborate with air quotes. Right. <laughs> and they'll give all their creative energy, they'll plan the whole thing, they'll use their resources, they'll bring their materials, and the next thing you know, the person that they are air quote collaborating with has now taken that work, if you will, or that idea, or has taken the fruits of that effort, and they're off somewhere selling it, licensing it, and benefiting from it. And so then they come to me and say, hey, this person, we were collaborating on this, and so then my question is, all right, well, do you have an agreement? Do you have an email? Do you have anything that kind of discusses what you guys are doing and your expectations? So so those collaborations, are it's it's collaborator be, beware I would right. say well well first off you know it's just speaking to to the audience it's a privilege actually and I appreciate the the time um, with the BAI talk essentially it's it's information right it's, it's education mm-hmm. for me it's it's my advocacy work to make sure that these groups of people have an idea of some of the legal pitfalls that are out there so. Um, and one of my disclaimers is, uh, you know, anything we talk about is not necessarily legal advice. It's just information, right, in terms of some things that you can look out for. But ultimately, I'm in this space, and I help people untangle this kind of stuff. I, ho- I help people prepare for these types of things. And so to the extent that someone has some questions, yeah, absolutely. Give me a call, shoot me an email, um, and, and we can talk. But for, for me, really the more artists that know about copyright like the more galleries that that um start to work with artists in in a way that's a little bit not i wouldn't say standardized but that there's just clear agreements about who's doing what the more that collectors know about these risk management issues i think the better for the for the space right i think artists will get to create more and get to be paid for their work more and be better supported I think collectors with more information will collect more, right? Because they'll get over that psychological hump of, wait, I'm spending this amount of money on this. What does this mean? Is this an investment? Do I just like it? What is this? The more collectors are educated, the better, the more they they buy, the the more they support artists. And I think the function of galleries is so important, right? Because galleries are kind of the the go-between, dealers of the go-between, facilitating these transactions. So, So definitely... The more information is out there, I think the better for everyone. By the end of the day, we want more artists to be creating. And I personally want to just debunk the myth of the starving artist. I absolutely don't think it's a thing. I don't think it has to be a thing. I think if people are educated on how to monetize their creativity, then they can be the living, working, breathing artist and do that uh, as much as possible. Well, I mean, so for the next installment of Buy Your Talks, we're going to have to have you uh, do a segment maybe purely on the monetization of your creativity. <laughs> so I like that. <laughs> I like I like that as a, as a concept because at the end of the day, we definitely need the resources to continue to do what we do as artists and creatives in this space. 
Samitri, I'm looking forward to you being at the show in Philadelphia, the Black Heart in America Fine Arts Show, Philadelphia, September 14th through the 16th. I tell you what, before we go, yes. Do you have a uh, what what what's a what's a go to uh, uh, spot for food or nightlife for the ones coming in uh, to take in the show and want to enjoy themselves in Philly? Anything you remember? Okay, yes. So since I. <laughs> Since you sent the, the, the invitation and since I agreed to do the presentation and go to Philly for the show, I have been thinking about this one spot in the Italian market. It used to be walking distance from where I live. Oh my goodness. The name of this restaurant is called Via de Roma. It's like in the Italian market. And when Italian market, what I mean is, you know, the Rocky movies where Rocky's like running through and there's like all this meatpacking stuff going on and he's running through an alley and all that. That's right. the Italian market. It actually looks like that. That was not a movie set. It looks like that. It's actually there. There's this restaurant called Via de Roma. It's been there forever. They know what they're doing. So if you want Italian food, which I have been craving since <laughs> for a while, that's probably the first place I'm going to go. But there's some new things in Philly. So on the Schuylkill River, there's a whole park that they built there. It was in the works when I left, but I'm looking forward to seeing how they've extended that. Um, the renderings of it look amazing but it's along the Schuylkill River what's great about Philly is that's a very walkable city um you definitely want to go see the Liberty Bell you know you definitely want to walk down um past some of these historic sites beautiful beautiful uh areas very walkable and of course you want to go to the African-American Museum there Absolutely. which is amazing but it's a walkable city uh but yeah if you want Italian food Via de Roma is really good it's really good, and uh, I'm looking forward to walking up and down South Street, and there's some other spots. So, and I'm so, looking, yeah. and I'm looking forward to you being at the show. And who knows, we may 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 have to ship some pieces back to back to Dallas on your behalf. We hoping so. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, thank you for your continued support and uh, bringing some valuable information to our audience. Black Art in America, you listen to another installment of Fire Talks. It's Najee Dorsey, your host with uh, art lawyer, Demetria Goodson. We want to thank you for joining us again, and we certainly appreciate your time. Thank you.